This last week, a British man was arrested in Romania on suspicion of being guilty of some very severe criminal activity. You may have read the story. He is one of many who in recent years have attained a new so-called status and reputation, that of an online influencer. Now, we all benefit from good role models in our lives, but some of these people have taken it to a whole different place. People who, through various formats, mainly of social media, they seek to portray and promote certain fashions or trends or attitudes or ideas or ideals, sometimes even a complete lifestyle, and who reach the stage where they become an icon to which others aspire. Some of them can be relatively harmless and innocuous, but many others, like this man, do great harm as they inspire people, and often younger people in particular, to lust after all manner of ungodly and unhelpful attitudes and pursuits and goals. Uh, this man flaunted an arrogant, self-image of self-serving, supposed wealth and status being signs of success and greatness. So harmful is he seen to be uh, that even in schools they are trying to educate students about the dangers of the things he stands for, although it does have to be recognised that um, whilst that is largely a good thing, some of their dislike of him is driven by the fact that he stands for some things which oppose today's agenda of equality and diversity. So their opposition to him is a bit of a mixed bag, uh, but he is nevertheless a most unsavoury character. But for some young men, he is seen as the epitome of greatness. The danger is that some young women may be lured into thinking that he is the ideal image of a strong, masculine, successful man, even though most of his crimes that he seems to be accused of involve the abuse and exploitation of women. Such is the perversity of the fallen world in which we live, and such is the perversity of sinful and wicked hearts. What is greatness in the world? Well, it can be all kinds of things, can't it? For some, greatness is measured by the number and the value of all the toys that you will leave behind when you die. For some, it's the postcode where you live. For some, it's the label or the badge on all the things you possess. When Satan fell from the glory of heaven, because Satan is a fallen angel, it was because the place and work that God had given him to do was not enough for him. He wanted more. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to occupy the place that only God may occupy. You get an insight into some of those things in, in Isaiah chapter 14, for example. And pride... That love and promotion of self, 
even to the complete exclusion of God, is what lies at the very heart of our human sinfulness. And we see that even for the hand-picked disciples of Jesus, the issue of pride and of wanting to be acknowledged as important or even superior still is lurking in their hearts even after the time they've spent with Jesus. And it doesn't take much for that to be stirred up inside of them. I suspect that's probably true for all of us. And that kind of pride and self-promotion can kind of be seen in two basic ways. Either you display an attitude of believing yourself to be better than others, and it comes across in so many of the things that you do and say, or the opposite can be you actually shrink back and you withdraw because you would like to be that go-getting, popular, successful winner. That desire is within you, but you're convinced, well, that's one contest I'll never win. And so you just kind of shrink away. But you do wish that you could be that person. It's still there inside of you. As we discover all the time in the Bible, this sinful world in its wickedness has turned everything on its head. In God's kingdom, everything gets restored and put back the right way up again. During the week, I was looking at an instruction manual for an electronic item. Um, and it has, this electronic item has a, a particular option that's available in its menu. And it simply says this, restore to factory setting. Put it back to how it was when it first came out of the factory. In our great sinfulness, that is what we all need, spiritually, emotionally, and morally. We've become totally corrupt in our sinfulness. We need to be restored to how things were at the beginning when God first made us to be in his image, that we might be his image bearers once more. And there's only one way for that to happen. You need to be born again. You need to be converted. You need to be regenerated. You need to be made new. You need that new and everlasting life which is only found by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as you repent of all of your sin. And that great life-transforming work takes place. And it's a bit like restore to original setting. And only God can do it. And one thing there is no place for anymore is the world's definition of greatness and what the world thinks is great. So let's allow Christ to instruct us on this issue this morning. And so we're looking first of all in verses 1 to 4 at being great in God's kingdom. Being great in God's kingdom. In the ninth chapter of Mark's record of the gospel, we discover that as Jesus and the disciples were returning to Capernaum, 
a great dispute had arisen amongst the disciples. They were arguing amongst themselves as they were walking along, which of them is going to be the greatest in God's kingdom? And so verse 1 of Matthew 18, uh, we find them doing what they should have done for the outs- from the outset, which is going to Christ and asking him to resolve this issue for them. And in typical fashion, Jesus deals with them with restrained grace and kindness. He surely must have been most grieved to hear that they were ever even discussing such a thing. But he's very gentle and kind with them nevertheless. It must have pained him to hear them talking this way particularly when it's not that long since he's been speaking to them about his own suffering and death, only half a dozen verses ago back in chapter 17. And now they're talking about this, which of them is going to be the great one, when Christ's only just reminded them of his suffering and death. Isn't that so typical of us? And look at what Jesus says in verse 3 having drawn this young child into their midst. And he points out these three really important things in this single third verse. Number one, you must be converted. Number two, you must become as a little child. And number three, without this, you're not even in the kingdom, let alone being a great one in it. You're not even in. For Jesus to say that you you need to be converted is to make it plain that something about you needs to be changed radically. But it's not a change that you can produce yourself, no matter how hard you try. Conversion is another way of talking about the new birth, being born again, a total transformation from one thing to another, from one state before God into a new state before God, from one nature, the old man, to a new nature, the new man, the Bible uses lots of different words and phrases to talk about this same thing. Of course, it's like Jesus talking to Nicodemus, as we have recorded in in the very well-known John chapter 3. It's a work of God's Spirit within you. That's the only thing that produces this. And John talks all about this, doesn't he, in the opening chapter of his Gospel record. As many as receive Christ, he says, to them he gives the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born. And he's talking about this new birth. But it's not of blood. It's not of the will of the flesh. It's not just something that you can decide to do. Not of the will of man, but born of God. It's a birth that God brings about. A new heart must be given to us. A new spirit needs to be put within us. All things have to pass away. All things have to become new. Are you a converted man or woman this morning? Are you born again? If you're not, you're not in God's kingdom. And you remain in your sins. And your soul is in grave peril. Which we'll come to as we get to verses 9 and 10. What must you do? You must confess your sins. Cry out to God 
for mercy and for grace. Put all your trust in Christ. Plead with God as we plead with him on your behalf in prayer that you might be converted, that God would save you. And a big part of the evidence of conversion is that you become as a little child. So if you claim to be converted, but you haven't become as a little child, that puts a huge question mark over your claim of conversion. What is it about a little child that should be true of a Christian? What is it about a little child that should be found in every Christian? Well, for one thing, young children don't usually make claims of greatness. They are sinners for sure. And their sinfulness will show itself in many ways. But a little child claiming greatness for itself is not the way adults do. It's not found in them typically. And a little child is certainly not capable of doing anything or achieving anything or accumulating anything which would amount to greatness in the eyes of others. Just a little child. A little child knows it's a little child. It doesn't try to be anything other than a little child. Like a little child, you'll think very humbly of your own strength, of your own wisdom. Like a little child is completely dependent upon its parents. You'll be totally dependent upon your heavenly father. And you'll understand that and that's how you'll live. Having food and clothing and a father's love, you'll be content with that like a little child is. Uh, pastor and preacher Ligon Duncan said this, Great men are so given to doing what the Lord has called them to do, they never stop to think about their personal greatness. They're so given to doing what the Lord has called them to do, they never stop to think about their personal greatness. They're the great ones in God's kingdom. But small men are so wrapped up in themselves that they never realize just how tiny they are. To the great ones in God's kingdom, being great isn't even on their radar. You might think of them as great, but for themselves, being great isn't even something they're thinking about. And so Jesus gives us this picture of this little child. Here's a little child safe in the arms of Christ, trusting, humble, unpretentious, claiming no greatness, making no, no, making no comparison of itself against others, speaking no ill against another. And that's enough, says Jesus. That's it. So it must be for you and will be if you've truly been born again. Elsewhere, Jesus will speak of Christians being as slaves, being as servants. Again, a place where you don't claim greatness. A place where you assume no rank or status over another. You're just a, you're just a slave. You're just a servant. 
the journalist and TV presenter Jeremy Clarkson made a documentary a few years ago, nothing to do with cars. It was a documentary about military men in the UK armed forces who'd been awarded the highest commendation for selfless bravery in conflict, the Victoria Cross. In that documentary, the last man he introduces, who was awarded the VC in the Second World War, was special to him because that man was Clarkson's father-in-law, although he'd never met him because by the time Clarkson married this man's daughter, the man had already died of cancer. And he tells us that his wife never knew that her father had been awarded a Victoria Cross until he started to research this documentary. As he concludes, her father had simply never thought to mention it to anyone. Is not that the kind of humility that Jesus is talking about here? A, a humility that does not seek its own? A humility and a meekness that does not flaunt itself? That does not seek any kind of greatness or reputation? You know, that, that, that arrogant, don't you know who I am, that you sometimes see being quoted, has no place at all in the kingdom of God. Uh, but we see that what Jesus is saying here in verse 4 is that there is a greatness in God's kingdom. It does exist. There is a greatness in God's kingdom. There is a place where one may be considered to be the greatest by God. But actually, it isn't that the greatest is a position that can only ever be occupied by one person. That's how we think of it in the world, isn't it? You remember Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest. Just me, just me. It's unique to me. But you'll see that Jesus says in, in verse 4, there is a position of greatness in the kingdom of God, but it isn't just one person. Whoever humbles himself is the greatest in the kingdom. It's actually a place where many may be considered the greatest. But it's under this one qualification of being as a little child before the Lord. To humble yourself as a little child. To recognize that of yourself you are nothing but a wretched sinner. And you understand that as the sinner you are, you should expect nothing more from God than that which a wretched sinner deserves. But God has lavished upon you grace and mercy and loving kindness. And he's transformed you and he's saved you and he's converted you. And as a born again follower of Christ, you come to him now simply as would a child. Me? I'm just a weak, 
helpless, vulnerable, trusting child. Such are the great ones in God's kingdom, said Jesus. Such are those as he uses to great effect in his kingdom. You don't come in your greatness to be used greatly by God. You come as a little child. And all the great ones that you might look at through all church history, all those who you think, well, they're the great ones of the faith. They're the great ones who've done so much for God. If they truly have, they will all have this one thing in common. They've been as little children before him. And that's why he's used them. That's how he's used them. As just a weak, helpless, vulnerable, trusting child. Make me, O Lord, a child again, so tender, frail, and small, in self, possessing nothing, in you, possessing all. O Saviour, make me small once more, that downward I may grow, and in this heart of mine restore the faith of long ago. With you may I be crucified, no longer I that lives. O Saviour, crush my sinful pride by grace which pardon gives. Make me, O Lord, a child again, obedience to your call, in self possessing nothing, in you possessing all. Such is greatness in the kingdom of God. And then secondly, in verses 5 to 7, Jesus goes on to show us and teach us that the great ones, well, the reason they are the great ones is because they care more about the little ones. The great ones care more about the little ones. In verses 5 to 7, whoever receives one little child like this, well, you're receiving me. But oh, woe to you if you cause a little one to stumble. In the world, a mark of how great you are is how great are the others that you're seen with. The world talks about celebrities as being A-list or B-list or C-list. Let's face it, who's going to claim celebrity status if they have C-list attached to them? What kind of celebrity is that? But if you claim A-list status, then you only ever want to be seen with other A-listers, right? That's what makes you A-list, because you're up there with all those other A-listers. It's just kind of a self-appointed, self-perpetuating nonsense, isn't it? But once you've moved up from B-list to A-list, you don't ever want to be photographed with a B-lister again, do you? Because that ruins the whole image. That tarnishes everything. No, I've kissed the B-list goodbye. I'm A-list now. That's how the world works. That is never found 
amongst the Lord's people. In fact, it's the opposite way around. But are you, are you guilty? Have I been guilty of having this A-list, B-list, C-list mentality, even amongst the Lord's people? Even the way we think about churches? Oh, they're an A-list church, you know. Oh, I only belong to an F. Do you think that way? Shouldn't be so in God's kingdom. It's all been turned around now. That's the world's way. It's not found in the kingdom of God. And Jesus teaches us so clearly here, greatness in God's kingdom and in Christ's church is demonstrated by your attitude towards the little ones and how you deal with the little ones and how you care about the little ones. Now, it can literally mean the little children, but I think we're also to see this as those who are young in faith in the church, those who might be weak in faith in the church, those who in the church right now might be struggling in their faith, the little ones, to receive them, to welcome them, to watch out for them, to seek to encourage them, to nurture them, to embrace them, to do whatever you can to foster and nurture biblical and spiritual growth in faith and understanding and love for Christ. What you don't do is just wrap yourself up in your own little elite club because I'm A-list now. That, that way of thinking is gone now when you're in Christ. No, this is what the great ones do, Jesus is teaching. This is what Christ considers to be great in his kingdom. To be like this towards the little ones. This is to be doing it for him. This is to be doing it to him. This is humble Christ-likeness. This is what he's looking for in each one of us. To live any other way is a rejection of Christ and is actually a proof, actually, you're not a converted one because you've just gone on for years and years and years making this claim. But you're not doing this. See how seriously God takes the spiritual welfare of little ones. If you put anything in front of them that makes them stumble, if you say anything, if you do anything, anything that they see or hear in you, from you, and it causes a child or a younger, weaker, more vulnerable Christian to stumble, God's very hot displeasure will be against you. If you lead them into something which for them is a great temptation and you've led them into this path which has caused them to face this awful problem, this awful conflict of conscience within them and they are there because of you. If you've done or said something to jeopardise their faith and God forbid that it should actually lead them into sin Jesus says it will be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck. Now, what's Jesus talking about with this millstone? Well, he's talking to a huge round stone used to grind grain, so large that it would usually need to be turned by an animal like a donkey. It would be attached to a harness to turn this millstone around. Such is the size and weight of the stone. It would be better for you to be taken to certain death and not exist 
than face God's anger over the effect that your behavior has had upon this little one. Now that's a really strong image, strong language that Jesus uses, but it just conveys how important this is and how seriously he takes this. It's a huge issue to Jesus. How great a sin it is in God's eyes for you to be the cause of a little one to stumble. Well, this should cause every single one of us to just stop and think and think and think and examine ourselves, shouldn't it? What have I done? What am I doing? What might I do? And so we're, we're being exhorted here to leave at the door all thoughts for yourself. All your own personal likes and dislikes and preferences, they all get left at the door. Your chief concern is, what am I going to be doing for others here? What about all the others? You have the Bible open as your chief and only guide for faith and, and conduct. Of course you do, absolutely. But eyes off yourself and eyes on one another is the way Jesus is saying here. For all that will foster and encourage spiritual growth and health and encouragement. That's, that's the thing that Jesus is exhorting here. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world because of offences. Offences must come. Look, these little ones, they'll have troubles and temptations and struggles enough in and from the world. The last thing they need is for you to only make it worse. When they're with you, they should find themselves to be in a place of spiritual sanctuary. When they're with you and with me, they should find themselves to be in, a, in an oasis of Christ-like love and truth and care and nurture. That's what Jesus is saying. And you're not caught up with doing great things to or for great people. That's the world's way. You have your focus on the little ones, not the great ones. Because that is greatness in the kingdom of God. The world has turned all of this upside down. This is the right way up. In God's kingdom, with Christ. And then in verses 8 to 11, we're reminded that if we are to be this and do this amongst one another, the third thing is, you must do whatever you can to keep yourself from sin. Do whatever you must to keep yourself from sin. If you're not going to cause others to stumble, if you're going to be able to keep your eyes focused upon the little ones, then you need to do whatever you can to keep yourself from sin. In the context we're considering here, and that Jesus returns to the subject of little ones again in verse 10, I think it's reasonable to conclude that Jesus here may well be referring particularly to those things which a Christian might do which causes another Christian, and especially a little one, to sin. And so, verses 8 and 9, in, on the one hand, are talking about all of those things uh, that might be having a bad influence, but at the same time, it's just talking about you and your Christian life as well, and your Christian walk, most certainly. (coughs) 
Where might your feet take you? Where might others see your feet taking you? What is it that your hands get occupied with? What is it that a little one might see your hands being occupied with? What is it that your eyes are looking at? These are really basic, important things, and Jesus is bringing all of these things to bear upon us. That you have put your, you've allowed your feet to take you there. You've put your hands to these things. You've allowed your eyes to fall on those things. Some of those things in themselves might not be sinful, but they can lead into sin. They can lead into temptation. And so we must be prepared to do away even with those things for the sake of spiritual growth and health and welfare. Are there places where as a Christian you've allowed your feet to take you? And either that is blatantly, obviously, a place where a Christian should never go, or you've been very foolish to take yourself there and allow yourself to go there because it's opened, up, opened you up to all kinds of problems and issues that otherwise you would never have faced. And so on with your hands and with your eyes. And Jesus uses this really vivid language, doesn't he, in verses 8 and 9. Cut off your hand or foot, pluck out your eye. There's this vivid illustration. And Jesus is stressing here just how serious an issue this is within God's kingdom, just how seriously we need to be taking these things. Do whatever you can to be rid of all of this. Whatever it may be in your life, if it takes you or others down a path that leads towards sin, be rid of it, is what Jesus is saying. Now, of course, Jesus is not teaching the literal, physical maiming of our own bodies, because no such thing is recorded in the Bible anywhere. Sometimes God brings judgment against people at the hands of others, but nowhere, uh, is, nowhere do you find believers in God physically maiming their bodies in this way. It is vivid language, which is intended to cause, cause each of us to sit up straight and take note of what's being said, because this really is quite serious. Flee from sin, Jesus is saying. As someone who belongs to Christ, do whatever you must to flee from sin. That's the message. The Christian path is to be a path of righteousness and holiness and of godliness. And you must pursue those things, things that are pure. Pursue those things with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The path of sin leads to death and it leads to destruction. And if you persist along that path, 
even though you claim to be a Christian, the fact that you remain on that path, the fact that your feet continue walking that way, the fact that you continue to put your hands to these things, the fact that you continue to set your eyes upon this thing over here, ultimately that may well be demonstrating that your profession of faith is in fact completely false. Because it requires so much more than simply naming Christ. It requires these other things as well. It's a, it's a life-transforming, life-embracing change once you're in God's kingdom and once you're following Christ. And surely Jesus is pointing out here, as the Bible teaches elsewhere, nothing in this world is worth holding on to if it all ends up with you in the fire of hell. There is nothing in this world hold, worth holding on to if it all ends up with you in the fire of hell. And everything in this world is worth letting go of if it means you will enjoy eternity with Christ. Everything in this world is worth letting go of if that means that you will enjoy eternity with Christ. And he wants you to be there with him. The fire of hell is real. The fire of hell is everlasting. That's how verses 8 and 9 both conclude. The word used by Jesus for hell at the end of verse 9 is, as some of you know, the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was Jerusalem's city dump where they took all their rubbish and they burned it. And the fire was kept burning. It was never allowed to go out. It was stoked up continually to ensure that all the rubbish got burned. Of course, that would ensure, help to eradicate disease and so forth from all of the rubbish. It was burned and burned and burned. It was a place of perpetual burning. And that's the picture Jesus uses for the punishment of sinners in hell, where all sins, all sins will receive their due penalty everlastingly, says Jesus. And he tells us, as we get to verse 10, that nothing that happens in this world goes unnoticed in heaven. Nothing that happens in this world goes unnoticed in heaven. Now some read verse 10. These little ones, I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. And of course, a lot of people then say, well, is this actually the Bible teaching that each of us have our own unique personal guardian angel. Well, I think we need to be able to use more than one verse to establish a particular point of doctrine. So I wouldn't go that far as to say that each of us have a personal, individual guardian angel, because I'm not sure we can read the Bible and come up with that particular conclusion. However, what the Bible most certainly does teach is that the holy angels are God's messengers and ministers to us, his people, for our good. 
it most certainly teaches that. And you or I actually might never know when God has actually used an angel to help you, to protect you, to assist you in some way during the course of your life. Some of you may actually have come face to face with an angel. You never know it. And I wouldn't encourage you to start spending hours and hours and hours trying to think back over all the situations in your life and becoming obsessed with it because that will do you no good and that will take you on a very unhelpful path. Just accept this truth. Angels are real, created spirit beings. They are God's ministers and messengers. And Jesus is simply making this point. It's not just God in heaven. The holy angels also are there. And heaven does not miss one single thing that happens in this world. Not one thing is missed. And that's what Jesus is, is saying here. And if you will pause for a moment uh, to think about all the things that Jesus is teaching here, if you'll pause for a moment to, to think about all of these others that we've been uh, exhorted to think about in this passage, all of those who are known to the Lord, all of those who are loved of him, those who are even under the watchful care of angels, who in turn appear before the throne of God. How can any of us really contemplate not taking to heart the things that our Saviour is teaching us here? That's the point. That's the point. All that we do that is right and good, all that we do that we ought not to. All that we have not done and that we don't do, that we should have and we should be, all takes place under the gaze of heaven. That's the point. So how can we not take seriously our Saviour's exhortation as to how he would have us be within his kingdom and for the good of his people. Well, these are really sobering words from the lips of our Saviour. But they're words of love. They are words of the deepest concern for the good and the care of his church. Let's heed them. Lest we fall. Let's heed them. That in doing good, we might first of all honour him and secondly do much, much to edify one another in the things of God and in the things of our faith. May we do so to his praise and to his glory.